Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Our sponsor today is 23andMe.com. People are starting to look within, accessing their DNA data to understand who they are, where they are from, and how they're connected to something greater than themselves. Many people are saying... Many people are doing this. Um, I think this is an amazing way to think about DNA, um, to connect something greater than yourself. Uh, The DNA journey of identity, connection, and belonging has only just begun. Historically, that has not been true of the way that people use DNA, but I'm glad that uh, 23andMe is doing something a little bit different about it. Uh, 23andMe.com is a genetic service that provides you with DNA reports about where your DNA comes from around the world. So you can explore what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. And now through August 3rd, you can win a genetic adventure as 23andMe.com will choose one person each day for 23 days of travel to countries based on your DNA. I am not sure about the phrase genetic adventure. Uh, We can workshop that (laughs) a little bit later. I think that I think that like we should think about all the implications of such a phrase. But well, I'm happy me, that people it, can go it has on a more vacation to do with cre- creating. You know, like um, if you're going to have a family, that's a genetic adventure for most people. Right? I'm just a little afraid like, that if I do the 23andMe and I do get the genetic adventure, it's like congratulations on your world tour. You get to go from this village in Poland to this village in Poland to this village in Russia back to that village in Poland. (laughs) Well, I just think genetic adventure, I mean, it sounds sort of science fiction-y, you know, like, well, what are you doing with my genes? Are my genes going on an adventure? Will they come back normal? Or like, or I'm going to have the proportional strength of a spider. Now that's a genetic adventure, right? It's making me think of Total Recall. All right, we should keep moving. (laughs) Um, Anyway, 23 days of travel to countries based on your DNA. Will you be one of the 23 people to win a trip and travel to locations based on your DNA? Order your DNA kit for a chance to win, a trip to explore your connection to the world, and travel like never before. To enter, visit 23andMe.com. That's the number 23-A-N-D-M-E.com. No purchase is necessary. This is open to legal U.S. residents 18 or older. It ends August 3rd, and you must complete the 23andMe uh, service. Visit 23andMe.com slash rules for a free entry. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. We have a very uncomfortable show ahead. Uh, a good show, I think. Uh, and one that has two conversations I feel really strongly about, both of which I will give you a, uh, let's just go ahead, we'll call it a trigger warning. Um, On the second half of the show, I talked to Michelle Goldberg, a writer for Slate and the New York Times, about Donald Trump and the Playboy president and women's health, and we focus a great deal on what it is like to live one's life um, with a president who is a admitted sexual assailant. I know many of you have some experience with that, and I just want you to be aware of that conversation in case you need to do a little self-care before or after listening. 
But that is our second segment. Our first segment is with Liz Cavell. She is a conference of sex educator in Chicago. We're going to talk to her about the Trump administration's cuts to teen pregnancy prevention programs. And the only warning I need to give you about that segment is that there is some explicit language involved and explicit scenarios. Uh, There's a little bit of uh, discussion of sexual assault as well, but not nearly as uh, weighty as the conversation I have with Michelle. And both those conversations are coming right up. So my first guest knows a little something about awkward conversations. And this past weekend, she woke up to the news that she would be having fewer of them. This, unlike uh, it might come across to some of us, was bad news for Liz Cavell. She is a comprehensive sex education teacher in the Chicago area. And like the rest of us, discovered on Saturday by reading the news that the Trump administration had cut over $200 million in funding towards teen pregnancy prevention, largely to programs that studied comprehensive sex education. She is with us right now, and we're going to talk a little bit about both the need for comprehensive sex education and something that I I think, Liz, you can really help us with, which is what that is actually like, what comprehensive sex education means in this day and age. But welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm so glad to be on here. Well, we're glad to have you. I mean, it's, you know, one of my goals here is to sort of bring people on who who can Talk about what things are like on the ground out there. And, and that's why I'm really excited to have you. I think probably if people are listening to this show, they probably have a pretty good grasp, or at least they think they have a good grasp on why these kinds of programs are important, why comprehensive sex education is an important factor in preventing teen pregnancies and STD transmission. But I think mm-hmm. a lot of us, maybe we don't know what these programs are really like, especially when it's um, doing outreach and, and trying to to get it, uh, as they say, at-risk youths. So I wonder if you could kind of talk us first through what it is these programs are, and then maybe we can talk about segue pretty easily into what kind of effect you see them having. Sure. Um, you know, one of the one of the best things about this these grants that were cut, which were originally granted by the Obama administration. Um, were that they were long-term grants. They were five-year grants, which would mean that not only would the services be delivered, you know, all over the country since the grants were federal, but then distributed through states. Mm -hmm. Um, We would also have a lot of community-specific but nationwide collectible data after five years of those programs that we could have used to better inform policymaking and sex education programs in general, because um, funding for these kind of things has been, been a political football for so long. That also means that um, data is really, really patchy as well. So that was one of the... Um, and really, what they've really done really is actually here. make the data that's already been collected useless, almost. Yeah, we can't process it. So yeah. um, the, the grants, you know, were inexplicably and suddenly cut off uh, to the point where um, I found out that I was without a job or without a contract on Saturday morning while I'm looking at Twitter, (laughs) immediately contacted my program leads and the organization that I contract with, and nobody had heard anything about it. And actually, my program lead had had her work plan approved two days prior to that. So they hadn't heard anything about it. And when I forwarded them the news article, 
um, they had to chase a bunch of people on Monday and Tuesday to finally come up with a non-answer, which is a national call to all of the grant recipients um, tomorrow, where oh, they're wow. expecting to hear the big no that was originally out in the media, but not actually out to any of the organizations uh, that got the grants in the first place. And so, yeah, like everything's been denied. The, the data that's been collected can't be processed. And other than direct service delivery, which I'm never, ever going to say was a waste of time because it wasn't, but uh, the data collection, and we spent a lot of time just even in our little program collecting data, you know, we don't have the money to process that data. Right. So, yeah. And and just to be very clear, what was happening here was, um, you know, about 80, I I understand, different programs that were Mm -hmm. scientifically directed and being scientifically evaluated for their effectiveness in preventing teen pregnancy, which in the U.S. is is high compared to other industrialized nations. It's been falling, but still relatively high. Um, Also, I mean, I don't know if preventing sexually transmitted diseases was a part of these grants, but I know that that's another thing that in the U.S. we're having uh, problems with as well. We're having real problems with that. Um, And, you know, a lot of these rates, um, you know, STI infections and teen pregnancy, even though they're not they're not necessarily, you know, they're, they're obviously not the same, but they're often they often go hand in hand. They're often correlated when you have. Um, increasing rates of teen pregnancy, a lot of times you also have increasing rates of STI infections. And the, the organization that I was contracting with, I'm, I'm self-employed, but contract with various organizations that got these grants. Uh, we got these grants because um, specific communities that we were working in have skyrocketing rates of teen pregnancy. I mean, we're talking 10 times the national average for rates of teen pregnancy and 14 times the national average for rates of bacterial STI infections. And the other scary part of this is that bacterial STIs in particular um, are becoming harder and harder to treat because we have, again, those are treated with antibiotics. And that's a whole nother conversation about, you know, how our healthcare dysfunctional healthcare system really, really doesn't do a lot with uh, antibiotic research. And so you know, gonorrhea, uh, besides going up in lots of pockets and therefore nationwide um, in lots of communities, it's also getting harder to treat. And so, you know, in the midst of all of this, um, these teen pregnancy prevention grants um, were just, you know, were just stopped. There's, um, there's, some, there's some people in this office now that are um, ideologic, ideologically driven to prioritize abstinence-only sex education, you know, and it is evidence based. R- right. Yeah. And here's the crazy thing about that, which is well, it's a lot there's a lot crazy here. Yeah. But one of the crazy yeah. things is that these programs were not did not have to do with abortion. Like which is no. a, a, the thing that you you know, we're kind of used to the religious right having a hue and cry about that. But that wasn't what these programs were about. These were these were simply comprehensive sex education th- with the goal of preventing teen pregnancies which you would think people who were pro-life, you know, I'm doing the shruggy emotion right now. Yes. <laughs> you know, I actually, I mean, I, I was born and raised in a fairly rural area in downstate Illinois. And when I, um, I went to school in Iowa and got my undergrad in Iowa, and then I immediately moved overseas. And I lived overseas in, in England, I, and then I moved to New Zealand, and then I lived in Australia, which is where I first started teaching sex ed. And to be honest, 
when I was in Australia and I started teaching sex ed, I, I specialized in teaching people with disabilities. And we're talking not physical disabilities, but intellectual disabilities for, you know, for sex ed. And then I come back to the States in 2008 and I look around, I'm like, what? <laughs> what are we doing? I couldn't find a job in sex ed because nobody, nobody teaches it. And um, finally, finally, the, the Obama administration put some money behind these grants to figure out, um, you know, which programs work the best. And that was that was part of the whole purpose of these grants. And, you know, now that they've been cut off and to a large extent, the communities that I was specifically in this past spring, you know, we're back to square one. The school that we were in um, really needed us to be there. And they were so happy that we were there. You know, we were already booked to go back again next year. You know, that that's not happening anymore. And a lot of times it does, you know, when I, I speak to a lot of politicians, <laughs> I'm extremely active. I've spoken to Congressman Roscom. I managed to get in front of his face in January. He's, you know, he's very conservative. And um, I know that this comes out of an ideological position that I have a lot of familiarity with. I grew up in a rural area. I grew up in an evangelical church. I understand the language. I understand the philosophy but what I always have to say to conservative voters and conservative politicians is that, you know, voting to defund comprehensive sex ed or voting to decrease access to contraception services or even to bankrupt Planned Parenthood, you know, it, it just doesn't make people stop having sex. And it doesn't keep condoms from breaking. It doesn't keep pills from failing. It doesn't magically cure genital warts. It doesn't prevent babies from developing fatal you know, abnormalities or stop miscarriages or prevent abortions. And it doesn't save babies and it doesn't save mothers. And in a lot of cases, we have mountains of data. We have mountains of data from all around the world to show that decreasing access to comprehensive sex ed and contraception programs actually increases abortion rates, mm -hmm. increases rates of teen pregnancy. And so, you know, a pro-life vote, as we understand it in the American political landscape, um, it actually produces uh, the opposite effects. The AP style book recently suggested that uh, reporters stop using pro-life and start using anti-abortion, yeah. which I think is a, a better description, um, but it's yeah. still not a good description of what this policy is. Um, it's not anti-abortion. This is in some ways a pro-abortion policy in some, to say that cutting teen pregnancy prevention programs, you are acting to increase pregnancies and increase abortions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the, in the last school that I was at in the Chicagoland area, so we're not even talking like in rural West Virginia, we're talking Chicago suburbs. Right. And, you know, Illinois has some of the most, quote unquote, liberal abortion laws in the country. And we still have a Democratic uh, majority in our state legislature. And, you know, we do have a historically uncooperative governor. But even with all that being said, um, we still have pockets in and around Chicago, not even, you know, rural downstate that, um, you know, the students that I was teaching, the nearest Planned Parenthood for them is over an hour away. And so I can stand up in, in class, and I do, and I talk about all of the different contraception and STI prevention options that are technically available, but in practical terms, the only real choice that uh, these students had was a condom vending machine in the local 7-Eleven, which is what they were using, you know? And um, I think... 
if I can just say like about this larger political football that ends up filtering down into these really, really bizarre backward policymaking decisions, I think a lot of times, um, you know, these bitter political conversations about kind of like what, what some people call identity politics, which I have to deal with all the time in my job. I mean, we're talking about like gay rights and reproductive choice and sex education, misogyny, trans bathroom bills. Um, they're, they're less almost about rights, but more about, I see them as territorial battles over public comfort. I think um, when I heard that slogan during the fall campaign, like make America great again, uh, I, I heard a nostalgic plea for, um, you know, I know it's for what supporters might have called a simpler time. And in my practical experience, what they really mean is when a time when they felt more comfortable in the public cultural space. Right. And we, we, let's be very specific about the they here. It's when straight, white, Christian people felt more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I I think a lot of times we're having some really, 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 um, we're having a really hard time. You know, we talk kind of about this left-right divide and, and we have a really hard time talking to each other because we don't really speak the same languages anymore. You know, um, I deal with a lot of people, uh, that, you know, come from that very fundamentalist, uh, evangelical Christian point of view. And, um, it, my job is sometimes like I have, you know, my job is to listen and um, try to find the deeper questions and the deeper meanings behind what people are saying and show respect for people's opinions, especially opinions that, uh, you know, personally I find I might find revolting and then focus on factual information that empowers people to make their own decision uh, without trying to extend their decisions ideologically onto other people. I mean, that's a balancing act that I have to, I have to do with eighth graders, you know, and so a lot of times it's not it's not necessarily um, for a lot of people about whether whether people are allowed to be gay, for example, but the, it's really about whether or not people are allowed to quote unquote be gay in public, mm. or whether people who are trans can use a particular bathroom, but whether they're allowed to be trans in public because the presence of certain types of people um, make other people uncomfortable. And so a lot of times I feel like these conversations and then these weird policy decisions are really kind of this extension of a perceived territorial battle over who owns the public space and who gets to feel most comfortable. And it's a balancing act to, to try and talk to eighth graders, you know, and middle schoolers and high school students about this, because, you know, to be honest, even you know, I've been teaching sex ed for a long time and I've been teaching in other countries that, you know, don't have a problem with me actually showing people how to use a condom properly, which I'm not allowed to do in the United States, which is bizarre to me. But, um, you know, online, online sex and social media and the internet has, has completely changed the game. So even the, the curriculums that I use, which are evidence-based and still talk so much about abstinence, um, there's still a lot of people would be really, really shocked to hear the kind of questions that, uh, you know, 14 year old kids ask me, um, without any prompting, you know, one such question. So when we think about like abortion and all these kind of decisions, I mean, one young woman is 14 in my recent class. Um, one of her questions was, what should I do when my boyfriend forces me to have sex at gunpoint, you know? And so taking that question to politicians, um, you know, it's not like they have an answer. 
know, their votes to defund Planned Parenthood don't answer that question. Well, right. And and that's I'm, what I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about is actually what you can, you know, bring to this conversation that no one else that I know personally can, which is what these conversations are like. Like you just mentioned this incredible exchange with a 14-year-old asking about what do I do when yeah. my boyfriend uh, forces me to have sex at gunpoint. And for one, I guess I want to know the, the end of that story before we do anything so else. So all of my classes um, included, you know, it, it's, it's really helpful to understand, first of all, I suppose, and back up just a moment. Like, it's helpful to understand that um, saddling PE teachers and health teachers with teaching sex ed um, is unfair to those teachers and it's unfair to the students. Um, most states don't require PE teachers to have taken any sort of coursework, not even one course in sex ed. And so it's just a thing that they're stuck with because most teachers understandably just don't want to do this, don't want to do this and they're unprepared. So um, at best, a lot of these teachers that get stuck with it kind of get handed a book and then they um, read from the book. And when students ask these kind of questions, they're met with um, some version of uh, tell your parents <laughs> or, um, you know, radio silence, really. Uh, so it's helpful that I'm somebody that comes into schools uh, to teach because students don't feel like they'll run into me in the grocery store and they don't feel like they're going to see me around the school and other classes. And that, that little bit of space and impartiality um, helps, to, helps students feel safe enough to ask me real questions um, about sex and relationships that I think they'd feel, they certainly feel too uncomfortable to ask their parents. And um, largely feel too uncomfortable to ask their day-to-day teachers that, you know, they're going to see for years in a row. So um, each of my classes always involved an opportunity to ask anonymous questions. A lot of people do a question box. Um, I just did post-its, hand out post-its. Kids would write their questions on the post-its. I would shuffle them up um, and answer them the next day for anonymity. And so that was one of the questions that I was asked, when should, what should I do when my boyfriend forces me to have sex at gunpoint? And, um, you know, the first, the first message that I always have to come back with is I actually, part of my job is to define what is right and what is wrong about sexual assault. Because um, particularly with the advent of online pornography and how prolifer- prolific it is and how much kids have generally seen by now, by, especially by this age. Um, a lot of students don't understand what is and is not okay, like just according to the, to the arcane laws that we already do have. Like literally what is legal and not legal. They don't understand. Right. That. No, they don't. Stop wasting your time pricing flights and hotels at the same old sites. There is a much better way to buy business travel. The only site you need is Upside.com. You know what I'm I realizing? Up- I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt. You know what I'm realizing? That Upside, it's both like there's an upside to using this service, like an upside to saving money, but also it's up, like it's up in the air for flights. It's the upside. <laughs> you know what I mean? John, John's here now. Yes, that was searing analysis. <laughs> Continue, Anna. I apologize for John's, you know, tenor. <laughs> well, I actually, okay, so I have used Upside. I used it to book a trip to D.C., uh, and it was great. It, the thing that it does that is a little different is that you tell it what you're looking for and then it shows you 
uh, hotels and flights that are outside the parameters that you selected, but maybe cheaper or maybe just a little bit more expensive, huh. you know, which is kind of a cool thing, right? Like that, that is their innovation. Um, the other thing it is, is they they bundle uh, flights and hotels together, which saves you money. And for small businesses like ourselves that don't have a travel department, um, obviously, this is great. And Not I guess yet. this is how like real businesses with their own travel department do it. A little passive aggressive, uh, give, but it's fine. They give you what? A little passive aggressive, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> We're a real business. I mean, we just don't have a travel department. We're Not just yet. a real business. Something put True. on the list though. All right, sorry, okay, continue. Put on the list. Um, I actually want to come out there this summer. So you guys will have to talk about that. And I'll Sweet. use Upside to book my trip. Uh, and they do give a gift card for every trip that you book. Uh, forget about how you used to buy your business trips and use Upside.com. Right now, when you use the promo code FRIENDS, you are guaranteed to get at least a $100 Amazon gift card for your first trip. That's code FRIENDS to get a $100 gift card for free. Upside.com, the better way to buy business travel. Minimum purchase is required and see site for details. This is even pre understand like we think consent is a tough thing to talk about or we think consent's the yeah. thing we should talk about. This is just even like what is legal and illegal. Yes. Right? So, um, you know, students ask me a lot of questions about what I um, what I've started calling digital sex, mm. which is, you know, sex, live streaming sex, sex online and um you know, sexting, you know, sending nude images back and forth and what have you. And so many questions come from young women in particular or people, young people who identify as female who say, well, if, if a man, they mean somebody older, older, older than 21, um, if, if he sends me a dick pic, if he sex me, you know, if he sex me, aren't, aren't I the one that gets in trouble? Mm. Because our laws around sexual assault, which are problematic, anyway, and have always been problematic, are completely irrelevant when it comes to this new sort of online life that we've all kind of created over the past just several years. You know, so we have a couple of lawmakers in Congress that are clumsily trying to address us, but, you know, like everything else, really, really badly. There was a politician who I recently called because he introduced a resolution that passed, um, which criminalizes all forms of sexting. And right now, sexting in Illinois is covered under distribution of child pornography laws. So, um, which again, is irrelevant when you consider the motivations and the distribution of revenge porn and sexting in general. And so these kids essentially have no real information. And a lot of these girls will ask me, well, if I get a dick pic, aren't I the one that gets arrested? You know, and and when you ask them, they're asking this question because this is a thing that is happening to them literally all the time. And they think they don't understand. They don't think that they can report it because they think if, if they even say something to somebody and this picture is on their phone, even unsolicited, that they're the ones that get in trouble because they're a minor. But I would hope that part of what you're talking to them about is not obviously just what's legal and illegal, but like their own agency, right? I mean, that's what they're Absolutely. kind of really asking when they say, what do I do? It's what do, what do I have the right to do? What am I empowered to do? Like, yeah. what, are, so what are the we, limits? We spend a lot of time, like I spend a lot of time identifying um, people, within the, so people within the community that are supposed to be in place to help. So we have one, that's one of the great things about comprehensive sex ed is that 
it models how to get good information, quality information, and it's usually community specific. Like who in the community, who in my school can I go to for problems like this? So we talk about the guidance counselor who, of course, after that question was asked and I answered it in class, the next class I had the guidance counselor come in and reaffirm messages of where to get help, what reporting is like, and then um, reiterated those kind of supports that were outside the school setting, depending on that person's comfort level. Because, you know, that's not the only question I got that was along these lines. Another question was, my best friend was raped. She wants me to keep it a secret. What should I do? So part of my job in comprehensive sex ed is not just to answer those questions and talk about consent and all of these really complicated issues and not nearly enough time, um, is to also identify who in the community and who in the school can kids go to for help uh, when I'm gone. I think it's really important to, to emphasize something you mentioned in, a little bit in passing, which is that one thing that comprehensive sexual education does is model how to get even more information, right? Yeah. Like you are telling yeah. kids this is you're not just saying like this is how you have sex or this is how you use birth control. You're instructing them in like and if you want to know more, these are the kinds of people you can go to, the kinds of questions you can ask, and you are empowered to do so. That's the message you're sending as well. That this yeah. is your body, this is your life. You are allowed to make decisions. Here is how you gather more information to make these incredibly important and intimate decisions. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my first class, my first contact with students with the curriculum that we use actually doesn't talk about sex at all. The whole first contact session that I spend with students is um, actually writing a five-year plan. What are your hopes and your dreams? What do you see for yourself as you're going through school? You know, what do you, what do you expect for yourself? What are your big goals? And then once, once we've talked through this, um, then it becomes, well, how does value, what are my values then? How do I use my goals to inform my values and use those values to make responsible decisions? And it, that's, that's one of the most frustrating things when I speak to politicians is that it's like, you know, what I'm doing actually is all about personal responsibility. And if I can just say one of the most revolutionary things that uh, I say to students as a sex ed teacher is um, it sounds so simple, um, but it's, it's so revolutionary is to stand up and say, you know, we all know that um, we're going to talk about birth control, of course, and teen pregnancy and all that, and um, what, how to make decisions about parenthood that are right for you and based on your values. But, but most of the time when people have sex, most of the time they're having sex for pleasure. Mm. And to simply state it, that sex can be for pleasure, sex is for pleasure, it's a revolutionary thing. It's a message that a lot of these students don't hear. And in terms, if we're talking about sexual assault and we're talking about some of the expectations that are on young people that are now informed by a lot of this hardcore pornography that they're seeing but not necessarily understanding, um, that message in and of itself is missing. And they're not, <laughs> these kids don't understand that sex is, sex is supposed to be a choice and it's supposed to be a choice um, and it's supposed to feel good. And if it's not a choice and if it doesn't feel good, you know, we need to talk about that, why that is. I, I think it's so interesting to emphasize this part about agency and, and choice and making decisions based on one's values, because in a weird way, like what abstinence only education does, I mean, we can sort of if you don't do any education at all, you're definitely not modeling how to move forward in the mm. world. Right. 
But right. if you do abstinence-based education around sex, you're you're saying just to people in some ways, don't know more than this. Here are the limits yeah. of what you can know. It, it's a it's a way yeah. of looking at the world that gets modeled for them that's totally different and shuts down exploration and agency and curiosity. Exactly. And, you know, I think um, one of my favorite things to tell us to tell adults, because one, I, I firmly believe that, um, I mean, there's a lot of work to do in this country about sex ed, but um, I firmly believe that sex ed should be offered, you know, comprehensive sex ed should be free and it should be offered in schools. And, you know, generally speaking, much earlier than we tend to offer it here um, based on age appropriate chunks. But there should also be evening sessions and for parents to attend so that they know what's in the program. And um, I mean, just as an aside, anytime I'll go to a bar and meet my friends, if people around me and if it's crowded and hear, you know, me talking to my friends about what I do or what something crazy that happened at work, most nine times out of 10, um, adults will hear me and say, wait, are you a sex ed teacher? And I say, yes. And I have a line within five minutes of adults <laughs> asking me questions because they don't know. <laughs> adults don't know. You know what? Maybe we should do. I just had an idea. Like, you know what we were going to do? We're going to have you back and answer some questions from listeners. I would love to do that. We're going to so <laughs> we're going to definitely do that. <laughs> That's that is cuz I think that you're right. I think that I, I think that there is definitely room in this world for adult sex education. Um but what so, question okay. so what do you questions do you get from adults? Um so I you know okay there's a there's kind of like two categories of questions. There's a, what I call the the uh, tried and true questions, the questions that have li- literally never changed <laughs> for like 60 years, you know, which is um how much is too much masturbation? <laughs> <laughs> Have you made anything sore? I imagine that would be like the, the thing to respond. You know, I mean, I'm like, well, if it's not impeding your daily life, yeah. and if you're not going to the ER with friction burns, then generally speaking. <laughs> All right. Okay. That, that know, will so cut off. We... And, and, and the way to, you know, it's like some people do X. Other people do X and you get the right to decide what's best for you. Right, you know? right. So, um, but that's one of the questions that I get all the time. You know, uh, can I can I get pregnant on my period? Oh, really? Um, can, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Can I get mm-hmm. pregnant uh, the first? Can a person get pregnant just the first time they have wow. sex? Wow. Um, so those are those are what I call the old and tried and true questions, questions that have always been around and I expect to always have to answer. Mm-hmm. Um one of the other questions, one of the more complicated questions, and one that um, is frankly lacking from public discourse in general, is, is it possible for guys to be raped by, by a girl? Hmm. Uh, which gets into a complex conversation because um, a lot of sexual assault, you know, for, for men um, is hardly ever reported. I mean, it's hardly ever reported in general, but especially for male victims of sexual assault um, perpetrated by women, it's hardly ever reported. And uh, that's a complicated question to answer. Imagine at a bar, um, it's especially complicated. I wouldn't want to. Yeah, especially because a lot of times, so when we're just even speaking about physical anatomy, um, a lot of times, it's just really interesting to see how people think of sex. So it's like, well, if, if I got hard, if I got hard enough, 
during the sex during you know when I was raped, then then maybe it wasn't rape because I was aroused. Mm. And so there's a there's a very uh, complicated conversation that has to that that you know I end up having when people <laughs> ask me that question about um, you know we have kind of a, a penis centric culture here to kind of broaden the conversation of what rape and sexual assault actually means, irregardless of whether or not um, there was physical arousal. Yeah, my understanding, Um, by the way, just so in case people listening don't know, my understanding is that physical um, reactions aren't, uh, you know, they're they're physical. So it doesn't have any bearing on whether or not there's consent because just because your body has a a reaction to something, it doesn't, that, that doesn't mean you have given informed you know exactly. I mean, and the easiest way for me to answer that question is to say your brain gets your brain is in charge of the decision. Yeah. Your your body doesn't determine the answer. Right. So if your brain, if you if you had decided no, if it was unwanted activity, it doesn't really matter what your body did in and of itself. Um, your brain, your brain is the one that matters. The decision that you made yourself. Yeah. Your heart it's continued your to pump. Is decision. that consent? Like you know, like you you continued to breathe. Like, is that, does that mean you yeah. didn't con- consent yet? Right. Um, yeah, exactly. So. Um, and then, you know, so other conversations like um, if you have anal sex, but not vaginal sex, then are you still a virgin? <laughs> Isn't that a philosophical question? Not a like real. Virginity in and of itself. Um, it, you know, it's one of those things that seems so simple, like, yes, you're, but it's not, it's really complicated. And one of my, one of my, one of the most interesting series of questions to ask young people, I'll usually start by saying like, okay, if you French kiss somebody, have you lost your virginity? And the kids look at me like, I'm an idiot. No, what are you talking about? And then I'm like, well, okay, so, you know, people don't really use first base, second base stuff anymore. It's like, if there's dry humping, dry humping clothes off. Is, is, has somebody lost their virginity? Well, mm-hmm. no, nobody, no. And then I say, well, it, what, what about vaginal sex? Penis and vagina sex. Has somebody lost their virginity? He said, well, yeah, yeah. Like, well, what about oral sex? And then the class erupts in a bitter disagreement about <laughs> whether or not that constitutes losing a virginity. And it's even more complicated than that with, with anal sex. And then, of course, especially now, I'll say, well, okay, so let's say um, people are having sex over their phones. Mm. Did somebody lose their virginity? And um, that's, these are the kind of conversations and questions that I deal with on a day basis. Things where it seems like on one level, there's cut and dry answers. But um, in reality, when you're talking to people, um, you know, it's not. There we, are not cut and dry answers. Um, in the last show, we talked about uh, the problem of thinking of disability as a one-zero category. And I think mm-hmm. that here virginity is also presenting itself as something that we probably shouldn't think about as a yes, no answer. And the, yeah. the problem, that's another problem with abstinence only education is that it definitely presents that as a yes, no category. And it, it communicates to, in the, in the problem with that is it communicates to students that you can do all these other things, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and that's what's happening. Yeah, right. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Um, you know, so especially, and I, you know, I know that this is an explicit podcast. I'm not being explicit just for shock value. I'm just, you know, trying to tell. We encourage explicitness when, it, <laughs> when it's appropriate. So I mean, go um, ahead. So to be, uh, to be really, really clear with the listeners, um, you know, so the last time I was teaching in a school, uh, I was teaching eighth graders. And 
what what that really means is that um, you know it used to be a lot easier to hide um, hide sex and hide the truth from kids, but um, and from young people simply because it used to be like a Playboy magazine that you could stash in your bowling bag or whatever. And now um, we have Google. And it's completely changed the game. So my typical students, the vast majority, have already watched, by the time they start talking to me, a tremendous amount of hardcore pornography. Mm-hmm. And these young people don't have the life experience or the maturity to understand that there is a fundamental difference between sex for entertainment and sex in real life. And so I talk to students who believe themselves to be very sexually aware um, and sexually knowledgeable because they've seen hours of cum shots to the face and group sex and especially anal sex. And rough, and rough sex and, and sex that seems forced, sex that seems yeah. that it, as though it's not consensual. Right. And then, but they don't understand. They still also think that you can get pregnant from oral sex. Right. So I, that's why I like even comprehensive sex ed when I first started teaching it, what I used to teach is still relevant. I mean, the facts don't really change. Um, there's a whole nother area here where even 10 years ago, what counted for comprehensive sex ed is just not going to cut it because there's a lot of young people falling into this gap of believing themselves to know a lot about sex. And in one and one on one level they do, but um, on another hand, there's it's you know, there's there's no understanding of basic information. So I have to kind of go back and fill in the gaps of what they don't know, while um, not really being allowed to talk about the difference between pornography and real life. And so abstinence only sex education that tries to just say like, okay, we're not going to talk about any of this stuff. You know, sex is dangerous and STIs are terrible and you should just say no. Um, I mean, I mean, young people are, are particularly these generations, you've lost them in 30 seconds because they, they know instinctually and just through day-to-day life that everything you're saying is largely irrelevant. Well, that's and that's what that's what teenagers generally believe about adults. And so if exactly. you if you give them evidence for it in the first thirty seconds, <laughs> they're really yeah, just exactly. not going to listen to you because you've proven their their a priori you know thesis, which is adults are stupid and don't know anything and will lie to you. By the way, yeah, that's the other yeah. thing. Um, so that's exactly right. I'm. We don't have a lot of time left, but I want to ask you something about something you mentioned earlier, which is about which is what the show is about, which is about talking to people who you may disagree with, but trying to find mm-hmm. a point of entry, as it were, now that we're talking about sex ed, I feel like I should use that term, but trying to find a way to to bring the conversation um, to, a, to a shared goal, right? Right. Or a shared value. And I wonder if you can share anything about that experience that you've had, about conversations you have, I assume, with parents or with politicians and how, how, sure. you, how you navigate that. Um, I, I always start from a place where my baseline assumption is that in, in, in terms of working with parents and speaking with parents, I'm a parent myself, we are all trying to do the best for our kids that we possibly can. We, we, we might have really, really different ideas of what that is 
and how to get there. But the deepest, the deepest motivation is the same. And it starts from a really good place. And so the rest um, is really about details. And a lot of times, you know, this motivation to kind of teach like a fear-based sex ed um, is a reflection of how scary uh, parenting really is. Um, you know, it's, it's a source of the, you know, an overwhelming love and the stakes are really high and um, nobody's ever telling you whether or not you're doing, quote unquote, the right thing. And then just when you feel like you might know what the right thing is. Uh, society, maybe according to you, feels like they've, they've changed the definition of what is right. And, um, and it's really confusing. And it's really hard. And it, and it feels really, really important. And so um, I try to focus on the fact that we have, we have the same, on the deepest level, we have the same, we have the same hope for our kids. And so in worrying about, it allows me to not take things Personally, I mean, I've been told that I'm going to hell mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, more times than I can count, and um, I, I, it doesn't it doesn't really bother me because it's not really about me at that point. And so I feel like it's my job to focus on what we have in common and to provide facts um, where I can provide facts. Like you know, even if um, a, a very strictly religious parent objects to the basic premise of what I do. Um, I'll, 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 first of all, I assure that parent that comprehensive sex ed is not somehow sex propaganda. The last thing sex needs is help selling itself. <laughs> um, How would you, that's actually a good, good puzzle for ad people out there. How would you sell sex? <laughs> um, it's really just an acknowledgement uh, that, some young people do, for whatever reason, have sex. And in those situations, this information would be helpful. And there is a place in, in all comprehensive sex ed for developing value systems. It's not unfriendly to religion. Uh, if religion is deeply held to a person and it informs their personal values, it's good to have the information in a sex ed class, in a comprehensive sex ed class, to reaffirm those values. And I always tell parents, like, look, yeah, maybe some facts and assumptions and even personal values will be tested in my class, but it's way better for those to be tested in my class than when you're half naked in the backseat of a car. Because <laughs> then it's often, often too late, let's say. Let, let's exactly. Just, so yeah. it's like, let's, you know, we'll talk through this together. And that's the whole point of a comprehensive sex ed class with, you know, a good teacher is to think, okay, what's important to me? What do I see for myself in my life? What kind of decisions in terms of sexuality and relationships would best support those goals? How do I execute them? And what's my plan B if everything doesn't go according to plan? That's, that's simply what it is. And so in cutting off these grants and just stopping this research, it's kind of like this political conversation about abortion. You know, the fact that these grants were cut off, it's not going to lower teen pregnancy rates not going to make the STIs come down. It's not going to magically cure anything. And it's not really going to change people's behavior because people have always been and will always be really complicated. And that's a great place maybe for us to close out our conversation um, with that eternal truth. 
I really appreciate uh, you taking some time to talk to us. Um, I understand you have a blog. I do. I do. Um, it's it's a blog that teaches parents how to talk to kids and young people about sex and relationships. I cover all things at all ages from, um, you know, infancy, which is really just about parents practicing saying words like vulva out loud without being embarrassed and um, all the way up to hard, awkward conversations um, about, you know, online porn and sexting and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, and that's always going to be, I insist that that kind of information be high quality and free. So my blog is always going to be free. And um, in the meantime, Especially with the grants cut off, I'm accelerating my plans to form a, a nonprofit so I can expand the blog into in-person sessions and web-based programs for people who um, I can't get to locally. And that blog is The Sex Positive Parent. Yep. Sex Positive Parent on Chicago Now Network. Yep. Okay. Uh, well, I, I want to do, do you want to plan to have you back to, to maybe answer some listener questions about sex? I think, Absolutely. I, I think that that would probably be pretty valuable. And um, also, uh, let's hope, fun, um, and which is also something sex should be, right? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, okay. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure. Texture, which I actually use texture. I know about you guys. Do you? Yes. <laughs> of course. Yes, of course you do. <laughs> I do. I do. Like, I love magazines, um, and like a lot of people who probably want to stay informed. And uh, it is like Netflix for magazines. You only have to, you know, carry around the one thing and you get access to all sorts of stuff. Um, many of us, as the ad says, get our news from social media, which you should not rely on just that. You should be reading real stuff. Sorry, I was, uh, I was reading Twitter when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> and texture has all the good stuff they have the new yorker time atlantic vanity fair um they also have rolling stone which i like their political coverage as well um they have gq and esquire i think you guys also know people who work at those fine publications Indeed. and they're doing great political work too we're seriously all- so connected <laughs> Well, what I like about it, too, is that you can, you know, you you get to eat your vegetables, not necessarily they taste great because it's good writing um, in from places like The New Yorker, but also um, design magazines and food magazines are ones that I look at through texture because I have interest in that stuff, but not enough to commit to a whole like, you know, subscription, <laughs> but texture just nine ninety nine a month. And I get to, you know, look at all the food porn I want um, or design porn for that matter. Uh, and it's 200 plus magazines and they've gone beyond just delivering just a magazine itself. They've made it easy to find and enjoy the articles you want to read with daily recommendations, exclusive interactive features, videos, and more. The texture app is the easiest way to feed your curiosity with top stories and new and noteworthy sections updated throughout the day. Texture makes magazines easy. I mean, you'd think there's not many ways to improve on the whole, like, Texture did magazine. it. They figured thing, it out. But they did. Yeah. They know it's, a, you know, magazine's a pretty simple technology. But again, every magazine you want in one place. Uh, the Vanity Fair uh, also is a great one that I feel like every few months they have a magazine article in Vanity Fair that you can't miss. Um, they're usually the kind of tell-all juicy stuff, like about the Kushners and whatnot. Mm. Um, so, but other times Vanity Fair does not have 
all that investigative great work. But you just get to read the, the articles you want. It Sweet. is searchable. You can mark what you like. You can check out back issues, view bonus video content, and they curate articles and magazines, again, just for you or whoever you are giving Texture to this year. Uh, Texture is normally $9.99 a month, and you get over 200 magazines. But if you sign up right now at texture.com slash friends, you get a free 14-day trial. Terrific. Do it. Sign up, people. Sign up for Texture. And now our conversation with Michelle Goldberg. Again, uh, we're going to talk a lot about sexual assault in this segment. So if there's anything you need to do to take care of yourself regarding that, please do it. And of course, I want to remind everyone that if you have any experience with sexual assault, there is help out there. You are not alone. You can call RAIN at 800-656-4673. And you can also use their chat uh, on the RAIN uh, website, which is RAIN.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. And also there's the crisis text line. You can text TWT to 741741. Well, welcome to the show, Michelle Goldberg. Oh, thank you for having me. So you're a writer for Slate and for the New York Times. And I wanted to have you on when I read your piece in the Times this weekend about the Playboy president and women's health. Because one of the things that you point out that I, I still I still kind of wrestle with myself is that this is probably the most libidinous president of modern times, which is quite saying something, right? <laughs> I mean, he's got competition. But I, I do think he wins it. And we're entering into, I think, a level of re- repressiveness, a repression, a level of repression um, to women's health that I, I don't have in my personal political memory. And how do we square those things? Right. And I think that in a way, the fact that he is so licentious and, you know, kind of that nobody thinks of. Donald Trump as a theocrat or a Puritan, in a way, it almost becomes a weird sort of cover for all the damage that his administration is doing to reproductive health, right? Like, I think if you had President Mike Pence, the the kind of war on women's health and the war on not just abortion access, but birth control access would make a lot more intuitive sense to people. But it's like you said, I mean, it's just this bizarre irony that you have this president who is, you know, literally the first American president to appear in a softcore porn film, you know, somebody who tried to negotiate for his second wife to appear, to pose nude for Playboy, who won't answer questions about whether or not he's ever paid for an abortion, you know, who calls the struggle to avoid STDs, his personal Vietnam who talks about his his the women in his life, including his daughter, in incredibly explicit uh, sexual terms, right? Who kind of can't speak about women in any in any way except kind of relative fuckability? Um, you know, who spoke about the breasts of his infant daughter? I mean, right? This is the most kind of like um, disgustingly predatory not just president, but really one of the most disgustingly predatory men in public life in America, period. And, you know, he's obviously someone who does not object to non-procreative sex. <laughs> he's obviously someone who doesn't want to roll back the sexual revolution. For himself, um, at least, right? Like, right, and so... And that's actually where it is. That's actually where, where we can start to understand this, is because he, for himself, he doesn't want to roll back the sexual revolution himself. Well, 
doesn't, I mean, he, I think he, he completely doesn't care. And one of the things that I wrote in my piece is that we're finding out that, you know, kind of cynical indifference can be as dangerous or as damaging as fanaticism because he doesn't, you know, because he's not kind of invested in the rhetoric and the frameworks of the anti-abortion movement. He doesn't feel any need to prove to anyone that this is for women's own good or that he's trying to promote a culture of life. And so in a way, maybe the kind of baldness of his misogyny might be refreshing because at least it's clear to everyone that this is what's going on here. You know, Donald Trump is grabbing the women of America by the pussy. Um, but at, at this, you know, he, it, what the old saying is like hypocrisy is the compliment that vice pays to virtue. So he doesn't need to criticize these policies. He doesn't need to take any steps to mollify their effects on women. Um, you know, like George W. Bush, for example, George W. Bush had a terrible record on international reproductive rights, but he also had a really good record on international um HIV and AIDS prevention. I mean, it would have been a better record without his, um, without the global gag rule, but it was, you know, at least he It was a value he had. Right. He had humanitarian concerns. He had a kind of like a moral framework. It's not my moral framework. And I would argue that it's often an immoral framework, but, you know, but at least there was, at least it was an ethos. Right. And so with Trump, you have completely and utter disregard. So he just sort of um, offloads it all to these various far-right figures that he has stocked his administration with. And it's really striking some of the characters that he's brought into the Department of Health and Human Services in particular. And and so you've seen kind of not just a, replica, a replication of George W. Bush-style policies, but really an expansion of them. I mean, far beyond anything that George W. Bush ever attempted in terms of his in terms of the global gag rule, which has been massively expanded, in terms of the attacks on Planned Parenthood domestically, which George W. Bush never, never tried, you know, in terms of attacks on things like insurance coverage for birth control. And one of the things that's so, that's both like interesting and, and really frustrating about this is that, again, because nobody thinks of Trump as, you know, as a fundamentalist, the fact that he's doing this has really barely registered with people. Like one of the yep. most interesting things um, that I that I've experienced covering Trump and covering politics was watching all of these post election Facebook and post election uh, focus groups that Planned Parenthood conducted with voters in a bunch of different swing states. Um, Wisconsin and Arizona, Pennsylvania, a couple of other places. And, you know, the voters, they don't know why they're there. They don't realize it's a Planned Parenthood focus group, but they're all Trump voters. And they all are people, they're taken from the majority of Trump voters who oppose defunding Planned Parenthood as a kind of slight majority of Trump voters do. And they just had they just had no idea that Trump supported defunding Planned Parenthood. They had no idea about Mike Pence's record on any of this stuff. They didn't believe that Trump was going to do this. And some of them actually took comfort in the fact that he was such a pig. Why would he possibly want to, you know, do this the way, why would he possibly want to enact the religious rights agenda? Right. 
And and he and yet he has. Um, the guest before you is a woman who's a comprehensive sex education uh, uh, instructor in Illinois, and we were talking about the two hundred million dollar cut over the weekend um, that Health and Human Services made to programs that would be studying how to prevent teen pregnancy. And right, and it's done in such a kind of destructive, um, unthinking. Yeah, exactly. Because again, they don't, they, they really don't care. I mean, I think in the George W. Bush administration, you had a desire to make government work on behalf of the religious right. And I think that's a little bit different than the Trump administration, which is just to deconstruct the functions of government, mm-hmm. right? So they're just sort of I, I'm not trying to make George W. Bush look like good in retrospect, right? But it's just, there, there's a level of like destructiveness that is brand new. Yeah, I mean, and, and, uh, and nihilism is what I've been calling it ever since the primaries. I mean, it's a yeah. it's a nihilistic view of government, um, and it is bleeding into, for lack of a better word, almost every facet of its administration. Even someone like Price or Pence, uh, who themselves have their are probably have more of a George W. Bush view of the world, um, I think have adopted this idea that we're just going to get rid of, of everything we don't like. And, you know, you know, who, who cares about the consequences, even though the, even though consequences are really, really fucking clear, you know, (laughs) and especially when it comes to cutting teen pregnancy prevention, right? Like, I, I don't think that there's a person in the world that wouldn't recognize that you there are direct consequences from that. You know, you don't stop teens from having sex by getting rid of these programs. Right. But although I think that it's important. To, so I think it's important to understand that I don't really think that their goal is to and not just Trump. I mean, it's obviously not Trump's goal to get teenagers to stop having sex. Well, but even he, people who well, actually specifically don't teenagers, he would like to have um, sex with them himself. Right. But, you know, but anyway. I think that, you know, even the religious right you know, it's not really their goal so much to get teenagers to stop having sex or even really to reduce the number of abortions in this country as it is to have government affirm and reify their values and, you know, kind of punish people who don't abide by those values and create that hierarchy of values. And, you know, people are, some people are more open to this and some people are, are less open about this. But, you know, if the choice is between improving teen, you know, improving sexual health and improving sexual and reproductive health or kind of being declaring America as a Christian nation with Christian values, it's really clear where um, where where their goals are. I actually think it's even more nihilistic than that at this point. I think they're not. I think it has more to do with dominance and punishment than it even has to do with Christianity, at least not a Christianity I'm familiar with, um, that especially when you think about this uh, incredibly unthinking cuts that they're making and the kind of uh, policies they're enacting without care uh, mm-hmm. is not even about declaring America a Christian nation. It's just it's just punishing. It's just punishing the people who believe otherwise. And I think you know, that way is in the problem with that way of thinking. And one of the reasons why in this incredibly vague way, I still think a president Pence would be marginally better for the world is that in a Trump administration with the Trump ethos, there's nothing to negotiate with. 
There's right. no there's no there there to hold on to to say this is a shared value of ours. Let's work towards it. It's just empty. Right. And, and there's also in the, and, and right. And there's no truth. So there's no there's no kind of empirical. You can't you can't you can't refer to you know, this program works, this program didn't work. You can't kind of shame someone for increasing teen pregnancy or increasing the number of abortions because there's no concern with any sort of tangible outcomes. Right. And no agreement about even, you know, what is actually happening, right? I mean, I'm, I could imagine Trump looking at us with a straight face, or not looking at us, but, you know, claiming with a straight face that he's improved, that he's that he's boosted funding for reproductive health. Yeah, I, I, can, I can believe that will happen too. He looks in the camera and lies to us all the time. Uh, I am talking to Michelle Goldberg, who's a writer for Slate and the New York Times. We're discussing her recent piece about uh, the Playboy president and women's health. I have really found... Uh, a lot of solace, let's say, in some of your writing about Trump and sexual assault. You and I have talked a little bit about this before. I'm really happy to hear that because I sort of, you know, as we all, I think everybody's kind of groping towards like, what is their, like, what kind of, what is their role in this like strange, terrible, you know, dystopian hell that we've been living in for the past seven months. And I feel like the one niche I can fit into or the one little need I can maybe try to serve is to like try to give voice to so many people's um, like abject unceasing horror at what is happening, which I still feel like hasn't been adequately expressed or processed, right? I mean, it's just we're in the middle of this inconceivable nightmare and on the one hand, there's obviously a lot of attention, right, to the like follies and foibles of this administration, but there's also just like an inevitable normalization and an inevitable, you know, and people and, and just like the structures of our kind of mainstream media don't really let you talk about this administration as like a history rending calamity for, you know, millions and millions of Americans. And, and I just, and again, to me, I'm like constantly, I'm constantly shocked that this is happening, that this is being allowed to happen. And, you know, and I know a lot of other people are too. And, and I want to just be real specific about one little corner of that calamity. I think it's a calamity on many different levels. It's an ongoing horror on many different levels. But this specifically is that we have a um, self-admitted sexual assailant in office. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. And that we're expected to, I mean, it's, yeah, it, and it is such a daily ongoing insult and kind of an obscenity that we're supposed to kind of act as if the dignity of the office has rubbed off on him as opposed to kind of him completely undermining the dignity of the office. I mean, this is like, you know, this is a garbage person, right? This is like one of the lowest, most despicable people in the country. Um, you know, he's someone I wouldn't let alone, it wouldn't leave alone with my two-year-old daughter. Right. And it's just, I mean, and again, it's just like, it's such an ongoing insult and it's an insult that then 
is um, reinforced both by the sort of like, you know, both by the blatant live misogyny of his policies and also by the fact that, you know, part of his administration is to declare, you know, we don't have to kind of pretend to be concerned about women's equality anymore, right? We don't have to invite women to sit sit in on the committees that are going to attempt to rewrite the entire healthcare system. You know, you see there's just, it's such a profound backlash, right? He both kind of embodies the backlash and furthers it. And it's just, it's, it's, it's this astonishing thing to have felt like we were on the cusp of being almost equal citizens in this country or moving towards equality in this country and to find ourselves um, back here. I mean, to me, it's something I still, I haven't come to terms with. Um, I don't know if I'll ever come to terms with it. It is, and I, and I don't know that any, I mean, I know, you know, there are a lot of men out there in the resistance. There are men out there who hate Trump and are working their hearts out right against him, but I don't know that they will ever get like the depth of what it is to be a woman and be asked to call this man your president. Yeah, I was going to quote you back to you uh, about (laughs) that, which is uh, from a piece in Slate. I'm not sure that even well-intentioned men understand how relentlessly degrading this presidency is for many women. Having a man who does not recognize the humanity of more than half the population in a position of such power is a daily insult. It never really goes away. And that's the part that I find myself like, you know, almost reflexively like tearing up just even talking about this because it's not something I allow myself to think about every day. This is like the experience. If if I had to try and explain to someone a sympathetic man or sympathetic person what this is like, it is like having to go to work with the person that harassed you every day as, as someone, especially as someone who works in politics. Right. Right. Like this is having to go to work having to be in the same office, you know, the same virtual office as a person who is a sexual assailant. And you have to do it every day. And what that means on a practical level is that you literally can't think about it. Like for me, at least, like how would you function, right? Like I can't allow myself to, to, to contemplate that part of him too often or else it would. Yeah. I guess my problem is that I think about it all the time. Um, you know, I think about it all the time and I'm just like constantly, I'm constantly aghast that, you know, that, that people are sort of going about their lives, even though I also go about my life as if everything is normal. But the fact that life goes on as if everything is normal when this thing is happening is something that I still, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get over. And I've been thinking a lot lately about like whether there is ever any way past this you know like how or should there be or should there be a way past it i don't know i mean i don't i don't think so right it's never going to not be true right but i think like how do you deal with it as a country i mean and i feel like the way that you know eventually who knows if this will happen but if this country is ever going to you know like really be a nation again and just to go on a tangent for a second. I mean, one of the things that is so maddening to me is that we're constantly um, talking about the feelings of like all the people who wear, you know, fuck your feelings t-shirts. We're constantly talking about the feelings of these angry, dislocated white Trump supporters. And 
we never are really talking about the feelings of the majority of the country that is aghast at what is happening. And so if we, and so eventually I think those people's feelings are going to have to be given some sort of primacy, um, whether that means like, you know, congressional hearings or like a truth and reconciliation commission. I mean, I've been thinking about how other countries have dealt with great national shame and have sort of integrated them into their self-understanding and moved past them. And I think that something like that will have to happen, but that will require everybody that will require a, not a total consensus, but a broad consensus about what a terrible moment in our history this is. I'm not optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I interviewed Trevor Noah once and he mentioned, um, how racism in the U.S., even as a you know, biracial South African himself, uh, mm-hmm. race in the U.S. confounds him. Uh, and he it blows his mind that we've never had a reconciliation about the Civil War, for instance. That, like, that's just a thing in history that we teach people, that we teach kids. But we've never had a m- national attempt to come together about it, you know, whereas that's almost an obsession in South Africa, right? Right. Like, that they work on that as a country, like to you mm-hmm. know varying degrees of success, you know whatever. But it's recognized as something that they need to do, and we just you know argue about whether or not it should be. We're still arguing with about fucking statues and right. flags, well, right? And whether or not and whether or not it should be honored and celebrated, and whether or not the confederacy confederacy should be honored and celebrated. Right. So if 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 we can't get a, get it together about the Civil War, I've, I'm not optimistic about. The Trump presidency, but maybe I mean, if things get bad enough. Well, I would say I, I'm not. I'm, I would say I'm not necessarily optimistic either. But I'm not optimistic about about the kind of contrary scenario, which is the country like lumbering on with this degree of mutual loathing and suspicion and kind of irreconcilable realities. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about the rec- about reconciliation here, or because the thing that I that's that grabbed my attention and my imagination in your piece was, you know, I'm not even sure a well-intentioned man can understand. How would we begin to help people? And I don't think it's just men, by the way. Um, I think there are a lot of women who don't really understand how degrading it can be to some women, this experience. Um, what do you think is a way to, to, to bring, let's to call it a, let's, let's consider whoever it is we're talking to be, to be well-intentioned. Right. Let's assume that. How do we communicate the level of degradation and insult that's happening on a daily basis? Oh, God. I mean, I, you know, I have no idea. I mean, I try my best in my writing. But the thing that I find so difficult and that makes me like really despair for this country is when I talk to conservatives, including conservative women, and I talk about, you know, what a humiliation it is to have this man as president and how maddening it is and, you know, how it feels like an occupation. Um, And they will, and you've probably heard this too, they will invariably say, like, well, that's how we felt under Barack Obama. And, and, you know, and I actually think that that's true, right? That that emotional symmetry is true, even though there's no, um, there's no analogy in reality, but I think that they, to realize like, oh my God, you know, under our, you know, decent and urbane black president, you felt this degree of 
dispossession and and degradation and horror. Um, I mean, it just makes me think that there is nothing that binds us as citizens. Yeah, because they're either they're either I I don't want to say they're lying because you're right. Like there's an emotional truth there. But the symmetry seems off to me, I have to say. Like well, the symmetry seems off in that, like, you know, a lot of what you believe about Obama, you know, if you believe that Obama, um, you know, was a Muslim or had dubious foreign entanglements or, you know, all the things that people believe about Obama, that's just not true. Right. But their sense of him as a kind of hostile force as someone whose very presence in the White House like sullies it. I think that they that they did feel that way and realizing like, oh my God, they felt like this about about mm. about Barack Obama like makes me think even worse of them than I did before. But at the same time it also is incredibly um tragic, right? Because if you really if they really felt this level of horror, you're what is there? For us to, to 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 come together on, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I really don't know. I think that, you know, and it's like, how do we, right, is every single election going to be this, um, like, existential contest between, you know, feelings of, like, mutual, of, of like, total kind of annihilation and subjugation? I, I don't know what you do with that. Um, and which is, a, again, I think, but, you know, then again, I think that I'm not sure how many people were talking about, right? Like there was when 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 Richard Nixon was impeached, I think there was 22 or 24 percent of the population um, still supported him. And that's about the percentage of the population that strongly supports Donald Trump. And so I don't think ultimately that it's a majority of the population. I just think it's the part of the population that because of a lot of accidents of geography as well as like deliberate political um, maneuvering, it's the segment of the population that controls everything. And I get your point. I also uh, worry, though, that sometimes, you know, depth can make up for uh, breadth. And that what is happening is that that segment of the population that felt so violated by Obama's presence is just getting angrier and angrier and angrier and more and more set um, in their belief system that is supporting Trump. You know, you know, I think I think that that's certainly I mean, I think that that's true. And, you know, and again, they're like dispersed in such a way that they end up having a huge amount of sway. Right. They basically control every lever of federal power right now. Um, But again, but I just, but I think that like in terms of, you know, the ultimate fate of the country, you know, the problem is that they is, you know, the problem is that the problem is like minority rule, not that, um, that like the broad mass of the American people have gone feral. (laughs) Yes, that is true. I also, I did, I mean, I don't know if it's worth coming back to my original question for this segment, which is that how do you get someone who is well-intentioned to understand what this experience is like? I don't know because it's hard. I mean, it's really hard for me to, I guess, well-intentioned towards who, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like I kind of feel like somebody, it's hard for me to imagine because because so much of 
of what Trump offers his supporters is the is the fact that he um, you know humiliates their perceived enemies and makes them feel like scared and and powerless and ashamed. It's really hard for me. It's hard for me to imagine a kind of a a Trump supporter who is well-intentioned towards the people who hate Trump. I'm actually even thinking about a non-Trump supporter. I'm just even thinking about like men that I know who support me, who support you, mm-hmm. who are, you know, feminists, perhaps they can in whatever, however definition you want to use. Um, that I even, I sometimes, I'm pretty sure that many of them don't even understand that daily insult part of this. Yeah, I think and I don't know that we can really expect them to. I mean, I, you know, I think that like my husband, for example, is a mensch and he works in politics and, you know, is finds Trump, you know, intolerable. But I just think there's parts of the experience that he will never viscerally understand. And I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't really even feel that invested in kind of making him viscerally <laughs> understand it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the only reason I think it's a valuable thing to do or think about is because I think that um, like sometimes like with my husband who doesn't like Trump, who understands all the bad things, right, is a good guy, one of the good guys. Um, I think sometimes he even sees like my reactions and it, he doesn't reject them or try and, you know, diminish them in any way. But. I think it's hard for someone like him, even well-meaning and all the me- meaning that well-meaning has mm-hmm. to get it. And maybe that's this is just a question about the difference between men and women in society we live in and they can never understand. But I think about it sometimes because that's where so much of my passion comes from about this. And I wish I could give that. Right. I know what you mean. Like, yeah, you wish that you could just sort of like put somebody in your head for a few minutes and kind of like convey the experience because it's a very difficult thing to to explain to someone in words. And I mean, I guess I just sort of trust the men in my life to like take my word for it, you know, and (laughs) my word for it because I think they see that it's not just me, you know, it's like mm-hmm. the millions and millions of women who have reacted in such an intense and visceral way to what's happening. They can see the evidence of what the reaction is, even if they can't experience the reaction themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that that should be obvious to any man of goodwill. And maybe that is a good place for us to end the conversation. Thank you so much. Um, Great. Thank you for coming on. I, I really do. I think you're doing in really valuable work in keeping uh, in keeping attention on uh, his history and that daily insult. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I like, I was thinking about that. Do I, I, I have to not think about it. I mean, I really do. I think that that's what my strategy is. And I don't think about it every day, but we need people who are thinking about it every day. So. I'm thinking about writing a book about it too, um, in part because it, like it's so all consuming to me. It would be all-consuming to anyone who who let themselves think about it, you know. Right. Because um, it, it, how can it not be? It's just, it's, you know, it's like what you and I talked about when you interviewed me for for your article about it. It's just a daily invalidation is what it is. Yeah. It's, 
It's your, you don't matter. Your opinions right. don't matter. Your experience doesn't matter. Like from the highest office in the land, the most powerful person in the world, you don't matter over and over again. I don't know how to, to move past that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that like, you know, the only way to move past it is with like some kind of national recognition. And so, and, you know, and the politics of recognition are so interesting, right? I mean, they're, they're so... Like you see them so wrapped up in like Israel, Palestine, mm. you know, like there's like all of these disputes about land, but there's also just like both sides want the other side to like affirm their version of what happened so badly. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's what kept occurring to me as we were talking also was just sort of the slogan, like believe women mm-hmm. and how important that those words are. And it it isn't just about like believe women when they talk about sexual assault, right? It's just believe me. Like believe me when I tell you. Like know that my experience is real. You know, uh, acknowledge that my, I matter. Yeah. Uh, because it's historically that has not always been the case. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's why I can't think about this all the time. If I thought about it, I mean, it is all consuming. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. And that is the end of our show. We made it here together. I talked to Liz Cavill. She is a comprehensive sex education teacher in Chicago. She does have a blog, The Sex Positive Parent. And Michelle Goldberg is a writer for The New York Times and Slate. And she is on Twitter at Michelle in Brooklyn. M-I-C-H-E-L-L-I-N-B-K-L-Y-N. She also has a book. Uh, that is from 2009, but relevant today, The Means of Reproduction. And I will just give you once again the information for the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, RAIN, 800-656-4673, and the Crisis Text Hotline, text TWT to 741741. If you want to be in touch with the show, you can follow us on Twitter at crooked underscore friends, or you can write the show with comments or questions i think we will probably be doing an adult sex education uh show in the near future uh and that email is with friends like pod at gmail again thank you for making it to the end of the show it was a little rough going for me if it was rough going for you you're not alone please do something for yourself right now and whatever you do love someone who does not deserve it especially if it's the person in the mirror. Thanks. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.